I want to begin by reading our passage from Psalm 139. And so if you would follow along with me. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Or that is our prayer now. Is that you would, through the, the power of your Holy Spirit and the sword of your word, search us. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see any painful grievous way in us that we might walk in the way everlasting and Lord we pray that you would give us eyes to see you for who you are that we might worship you in spirit and truth as we meditate on who you are and are left almost speechless at your knowledge and power and presence and then that you would know and love us 
Lord, we ask for your grace now as we look to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote that if there is a God, we certainly don't relate to him as people on the first floor of a building relate to people on the second floor. We relate to him in the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. We are the characters. We might, not, we might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree that he reveals himself to us, that he puts information in the play about himself. I think that's a helpful illustration as we look at this psalm, to see God as the author of life and creation, that we relate to him as a divine novelist, that he has written not only the story of the world, but our particular story, and that he stands outside of time, as a novelist does, outside of his work. He can be in chapter 1 and chapter 10 and in the middle, all together at the same time. He knows us because he created us. He made us. He's a good and wise and purposeful author. That is a great comfort as we think about our circumstances, the things that are on the front burner of our minds right now, that he is a wise and good author. That's an anchor for us in suffering and unknown. It can also be a terrible reality if we find ourselves trying to hide and run away from this sovereign, all-power, all-powerful God. We live in a world created by him that is also drastically fallen from his design and his purpose. Al Mohler said once that every atom and molecule of the cosmos calls out for redemption. And so in God's story, he is more than just creator and sustainer and even judge, but also redeemer. Psalm 139 is a psalm that magnifies God in his glory. It's a psalm of David. It divides into four stanzas of six verses there in our English text. Something of a composite psalm bringing together all kinds of different genres. Of It's a hymn and a praise. It's a thanksgiving. It's a lament, confession, meditation, prayer, all put together. Some form of the word no just dominates the passage. If you, maybe you notice that as we read through it. It occurs six times. David just boldly and joyfully declares that God knows everything, verses 1 to 6. He declares that God is everywhere, verses 7 to 12, and that God can do anything, verses 13 to 18, and that God will deal with everyone, verses 19 to 24. That about sums it up. In this psalm, we see who God is and who we are. Yes, sinners. But those of us in Christ redeem sinners, his children. John Calvin put it like this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So I'm praying that just the truth of this passage this morning would awaken our affections anew and afresh to this sovereign, good God. 
and that would result in an all-consuming worship of him. The all-knowing, always-present, all-powerful, creating, caring God of the universe. That's the God of Psalm 139. Here's how we're going to go through the passage together. Um, There's a lot of ways we could break this down. I heard some encouraging words before, how people were looking forward. This is one of your favorite psalms. Well, I want to encourage you to um, have your appropriate expectations. Um, But also, if you're someone who prays the Bible, what a psalm to pray, to use as a basis for prayer and meditation in your own devotions. Psalm 139 is almost endless to that regard. But first, we're going to look at the first kind of 18 verses as a whole as we consider this meditation of who God is, all-knowing, ever-present creator. David is just meditating on God for those first 18 verses. And then we'll contrast that with the enemies of God, those that ignore and rebel against God. We'll call them the men of bloodshed. They're in verses 19 through 22. And then finally, we'll look at sort of the final response to the psalm there in verses 23 and 24. And admittedly, we, we find in these verses a high knowledge about God. David says even unattainable knowledge. But friends, life is found in the pursuit of God. We'll spend eternity trying to exhaust who God is. And so I want to encourage you to, to join David and join me in, in this pursuit. He is wonderful. So let's think about the first section together as we think about this all-knowing, all present creator. The structure of the psalm is very easy to follow. David is going to meditate on three attributes of God that are really the most godlike attributes that you could think of. You might say they're incommunicable. In other words, they're not shared with us, with humans. These are all, all belong to God, all by himself in a unique way. So in verses 1 to 6, for example, we learn that about God's omniscience. He is all-knowing. And David focuses and applies God's knowledge particularly to himself, and we can apply it particularly to to ourselves, his creation. So look down there at verse 1 as we think about the way that God knows us. Again, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Think about the powerful verbs that David uses here. You've searched and known, verse 1. You know, you understand, verse 2. You comprehend, you scrutinize, or the word could be winnow. Uh, You're intimately acquainted, verse 3. You know altogether, verse 4. You've hemmed me in, verse 5. This is not passive language of someone kind of observing what's happening, like you would rubberneck on an accident on the side of the road. This is comprehensive and thorough knowledge. It's perfect knowledge that God has of David and that God has of you and me. That, that phrase, you have searched me out, is, it's used in 1 Samuel. When, if you remember when Jonathan goes to, to find out whether or not Saul's going to really hurt David, he's going to go and search him out and discern kind of his, his motive and then let David know. That's, that's sort of the, the idea. Friends, we know that when we read passages like this, God isn't actually needing to conduct a search of us. This is language that is grasping at the realities that, that we're just simply limited by finite beings to describe. 
God doesn't need to search. He doesn't, I don't think, actually have a literal book where all of our days are written. Maybe he does, but it seems like a, a metaphorical way, a way to just describe this reality that is beyond us, past our comprehension. Verse 1 just tells us that God has comprehensive knowledge of our souls. We have all have secrets, things that we would never tell even our closest friend. We would never want anyone to know about us. But there are no secrets from God. Our souls are open books to him. He knows all of our actions, verses 2 and 3. Whether I'm sitting down, whether I'm rising up, just a way of saying I know it all, he knows it all. Indeed, even my attitudes and motives behind those actions are known by God. You understand and discern my thoughts from afar. And if he knows our thoughts, he certainly knows our words. Verse 4, even before we speak them. And he knows them exhaustively and completely. He knows them all together, it says. Even when we say, I didn't mean to say that, and that just kind of slipped out, surprised me even. Well, it didn't surprise God. Verse 5 gives us the picture of being completely surrounded, hemmed in. God is behind and is before and is upon me, he says. And this supernatural knowledge leads David to stand in amazement at who God is in verse 6. There's no analogies for this, for omniscience. This concept, getting it around, getting our minds around it, is too high for us. Too wonderful for our brains to understand that God knows everything. But David said, God is also everywhere. He is omnipresent. So look with me at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. When our kids were little, we would play peekaboo. And the idea behind peekaboo is that you're closing your eyes and then kind of peeking. And that's like a, like a startling thing for a child. And it's fun, right, when they're little. But my kids, when they were small, kind of reversed it and, and thought that when they closed their eyes and put their hands over their face, I couldn't see them. And so they were completely hidden from me. And so even when they would get in trouble... I would find them doing this. And like now they've disappeared into the nothingness. And it's as if David was playing peekaboo the wrong way. And now God has showed him, no, this is actually how the game works. I see you all the time, everywhere. Where can you go to flee? What's the answer to that rhetorical question there in verse 7? About hiding from God in his presence? Well, he gives us an answer in verses 8 and 9. This is sort of a Hebrew parallelism. By showing two extremes, one vertical and one horizontal. So vertical, if you were to ascend to heaven or go all the way down and make your bed in Sheol, kind of imagine the highest and the lowest, you're there. Or if you wanted to go 
horizontal, from east to west. If I welcome the light at dawn and then travel somehow by the speed of light to the uttermost part of the sea where the sun is going down, you are there too. Notice that it's not like God is a passive observer. He's not just out there keeping watch over us. Maybe you might think even just recording all the, the things that I do wrong. And Look at verse 10. Even in the utmost, utmost heights or depths or in the west or the east, even there, your hand shall lead me. That implies direction. This sovereign, mighty God who's everywhere is directing this finite, sinful person. Your right hand shall hold me. That implies protection. He's watching over us. He's watching over David. Notice the tender hand of God. His protection and guidance and care for the believer. There's no escaping his presence. If you want a meditation on that, go read Jonah. That's his idea. That's what he wants to do. doesn't go well for him. But why would we want to? And even if you were to turn all the lights out and make it as dark as you possibly could, live in a black hole, verse 11. David just reminds us that darkness is not dark to God. And I, I, and I think that's a significant point of application for some of us, that when we walk in darkness, it's not us that are, that are going to overcome the darkness. It's God. Because it's not dark to him. And so when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our eyes are not focused on the darkness, but on the shepherd who leads us through that valley. Dark is not dark to him. Friend, this is a picture of God as all-knowing, always present, everywhere, and it is meant to be marveled at. But we also want to consider that if it's true, it means that God knows everything about us, even those things that we would never want anyone to know. So Stephen Charnock, who lived in the 17th century, was a Puritan preacher. He said this, How terrible should the thoughts of this attribute be to sinners? How foolish is it to imagine any hiding place from the incomprehensible God who fills and contains all things and is present to every point of the world. When men have shut the door and made all darkness within to meditate or commit a crime, they cannot in the most intricate recesses be sheltered from the presence of God. No thought is hid, no lust is secret, but the eye of God beholds this and that and the other. He is present with our heart when we imagine, with our hands when we act. We may exclude the sun from peeping into our solitudes, but not the eyes of God from beholding our actions. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, I just want you to know how glad I am that you're here. I'm thankful that you've come to, to listen to this, this sermon about who God is. I wonder if this is the way you've thought about God, the God of the Bible. Or are you thinking about in slightly different terms? I know a lot of times when I look back at my life as a non-Christian, which as you heard in the introduction, I became a believer in college. I was regularly comparing myself to others and also in my mind presenting an edited version of myself to God when I would pray. So I would think as I looked at others that I was not as bad as they were. And then when I talked to God, which I did, I think out of kind of a, a, a pricked conscience, then I would give this edited version, just like I would show God my Facebook feed. 
Everything's great. Nothing's wrong. I wonder if that's the way you think about God. If it is, I would encourage you to think more about the way the Bible presents him, particularly in this psalm, that he's always there. There's nothing you can keep from him. You can't put your best foot forward with this God or when you think when you close the door, something is in secret. Now, this is a life-changing reality for us. The first step that we all need to make with God is admitting that if he knows us, he also knows our sins. We've sinned against him in every way, in thought, in action, in motive, in our secret deeds. And in many ways, we've been hiding from him, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And he's calling you out of the darkness into the light. It's important to ask yourself, is that me? Am I in darkness? And is God calling me into the light? Because there's another attribute of God that's presented here that makes the first two even more weighty. Not only is he all-knowing and all-present, but also all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And David's exhibit A for that is his power in creation, and particularly the creation of a human being. So look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The language here, especially in verse 13, is that of a master craftsman forming a beautiful sculpture, weaving a tapestry. Uh, Chip McDaniel notes that the Hebrew word could be translated embroidered, that, that the other eight times that word is used, it describes the needlework in the tabernacle and, and the clothing that's described in the Exodus. That's what God did to make you. So David is leaving no doubt that God is our creator, for he has formed us. Even my inward or inmost parts, literally that's kidneys, my organs, he has made me. All that I am inwardly, body and soul, you made it. And we know from the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, that he's made us in his image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So, so in the womb, God is secretly creating a human being who bears his own image. An image who's going to go and, and, and say to the world, this is who God is. That's what David is describing in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That frame is just a reference to the bones and to, to the, 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 the skeletal structure of, of our being. And in the depths of the earth is just, I think, a poetic way of referring to the most secret, dark, and remote place on the earth, a mother's womb. So David, again, cannot help but break out into praise in verse 14 for God's creating power. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. It's amazing to just observe the human body, isn't it? To think that our hair just grows. When we lose a tooth, when we're little, a new one comes in. When we break a bone, it heals. We have a young man in our church who was in a very serious car wreck months ago. 
And when you say someone broke every bone in their body, that's, that's really true of him. He, he broke his hip in 10 places. He broke both legs, femurs, arms, wrists, ankles, his back, his neck, his jaw. Was, he was a shell of a human being. And now, a month later, he's about to walk out of the hospital. That is amazing that someone could be that, that broken and then healed. We, we, just, we, we forget about how amazing it is. And David is saying all that is present in a mother's womb. It's, it's there. We're talking about there, a, a human life, no matter what, what terms we would use, fetus or, or embryo. Randy Alcorn comments, like toddler and adolescent, the terms embryo and fetus do not refer to non-humans, but to humans at various stages of development. It's scientifically inaccurate to say a human embryo or a fetus is not a human being simply because he's at an earlier stage than an infant. This is like saying a toddler is not a human being because he's not yet an adolescent. Does someone become more human as he gets bigger? If so, then adults are more human than children and football players are more human than jockeys. The right to live does not increase with age and size. Otherwise, toddlers and adolescents have less right to live than adults. Now, David is saying that the miracle of life begins at conception. And in the womb, there, you have this amazing creation that is ordained, a life ordained by God. Look at the way David describes it in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there was none of them. God has seen our unformed substance before we were. He saw us and knew us. But more than that, every day of your life was planned and recorded. God wrote all the details of your life in his book. And he fashioned and formed all the days of your life when none of them yet existed. Sometimes we throw out that phrase, God has a plan. This is what that means biblically, right? This is where we see it. It's what a comfort, what a marvel. This is not, not fatalism. This is not, well, well, we shouldn't read this and think, well, then if that's true, then I'm just going to sit on the couch and see, watch and see what God does. We have this mind-blowing tension, don't we, in the Bible of God's complete, utter sovereignty matched by man's responsibility. And we can walk those things out as close as we can, but ultimately we get to mystery. We get to the place where David does and says, this is too high for me. We know both of these realities are true. So both in terms of your length of days and the specifics of every one of your days, God has laid it out for his purposes and for your good. I think sometimes in the name of humility, we, like, we, we, we sort of de-emphasize this. God's fatherly care for us. Because we don't want to make too much of ourselves. We want the focus to be on God. But maybe the effect is that we don't linger much on God's love and thought for us. Friends, that could be well-meaning, but it can certainly be misleading and unhelpful, right? 
I love the way that David meditates on God's thoughts about him. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. One author author describes what's going on there this way. He says, your thinking of me down to the last detail is so very precious to me, my God. The vastness and greatness of their total is so great. They are more than every grain of the sand on the earth. Trying to count them all exhausts me and I fall asleep. Yet when I awake, there you are. Every day of my life. So it's not man-centered, beloved to know the truth that God knows us and is with us at every step of our lives, that he made us and cares about every detail of our existence. Notice how when David meditates on this, it doesn't result in him making much of himself, but worshiping God, exalting God and who he is. God gets the glory as we grow in our understanding of his love and care for us from before we were born until we are with him. So this is our God He knows everything about us. He's everywhere around us. And he can do anything for us. But not everyone believes this about God. Not everyone loves God like this. What about those that reject everything that we've seen so far? Everything that God has revealed about himself. Look at this next section together briefly. As we think about the enemies and men of bloodshed. I think David, it seems, is meditating on a psalm like Psalm 2 or a psalm like Psalm 110 as he's writing these words. Now, I don't know what he was meditating on, but those themes certainly come through in Psalm 139. If you look at Psalm 2, you look at Psalm 110, you see those those realities there. David is thinking about God's future kingdom. So there's rebels in Psalm 2. There's a plot that's in vain against the Lord and his anointed. They're leading people away from God, trying to ruin their lives. In Psalm 110, it's again enemies that David prays would be made into the Lord's footstool. So he's essentially asking that the Lord's kingdom would come and his will be done. And that includes dealing with wickedness and rebellion and bloodshed on earth. So look at what he says there in verse 19. These are not usually the words that are on Christian coffee cups, but we need to understand them and, 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 and delve into them. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. There's two things I'll mention quickly about reading psalms like this, often referred to as the imprecatory psalms, asking where the psalmist is asking for God's judgment on the wicked and expressing hatred for the enemies of God. And the first thing I would, I would encourage you to do is when you read these passages, first read them as a sinner. When you read words like wicked and enemies, descriptions like the men of bloodshed, and haters of God. The first thing you should think about, I don't think is ISIS or fill in the blank of your most, you know, the evil group that you have in your mind. The first person you should think of is you and me. We've seen clearly in our passage that God is holy. 
He's completely different than anything else in the universe. He made it all out of a loving and glorious purpose. He made us in his image, but we have all sinned against him. We have transgressed his law. We've walked away from him. We've even tried to seize his throne. We've even tried to live without him. So if you look at the description of the wicked in our passage, you could say in many ways that is our own resume. They speak against God wickedly, take his name in vain, hate God. That's a description of every human being at some level who has broken God's law. And the right thing for God to do is to slay the wicked, to punish the rebels, to uphold his righteousness. Paul describes non-Christians as being enemies of God in Romans 5. But God, in his great mercy, did not leave us in that state. But he sent a Savior. He sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, to live a perfect life of righteousness and obedience to God. And then to lay that life down on a cross as a substitute for a ransom, a sacrifice for all those that would turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in him. So he took God's wrath for his people. He paid the penalty and died in our place. And three days later, he rose bodily from the grave, victorious over sin and death. And one day he will return again. So if we repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can be saved from God's wrath, forgiven for all of our sin, and be made new, reconciled to God. Friend, that is the bloodshed that matters most. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And see if this sounds familiar. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friend, that is good news. God's comprehensive knowledge of our brokenness and sin is matched by his comprehensive love and grace and mercy in Christ. Come to Christ. Do you see the value of Jesus and his sacrifice for us? What he purchased on the cross. So read these sections as a sinner. But also we want to read them as Christians. That means we want to understand that the Old Testament is, is laying a groundwork for the new. And that the commission for, for David, for example, is different than the commission Jesus gives us. We're not trying to capture the promised land or defend God's people in battle, Jesus has come to purchase a people to, fought, to fight and win a battle and now calls us to make disciples of the nations. And so in many ways, Jesus' answer to David's question in verses 21 and 22 is in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 45 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. But also in the New Testament, we're commanded to hate evil. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
but we don't take vengeance ourselves on the evildoer, but trust that God will settle all accounts perfectly. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be those that love the lost, love our enemies, and pray that Jesus would come back and bring about the vengeance and justice of God on those who are turning from him. When we pray for the kingdom to come, for his will to be done, we are praying for God to judge wickedness, for he is just. We're leaving room for the wrath of God. We're seeking justice. We're declaring, I think what David's doing is declaring what side he's on. He's on the Lord's side. We're hating evil. And we give our lives to serve those who maybe don't have a voice. In our city, we're seeking to overcome evil with good. I don't know about all the details here in in Austin. I know where I live in Houston, there's an abortion clinic within a stone's throw of our church. And I mean that literally, it's right there. That's now quiet, praise the Lord. But there's also a women's pregnancy center down the street that we're seeking to encourage and support all the more. It's had their share of challenges of late. But at bottom, what we're wanting to see, and I know what you're wanting to see, is people who are far from God come to know this God of Psalm 139 in your neighborhood, in this community, on the campus of UT. We offer an amazing gospel. The person that wrote this psalm committed murder, adultery. And he's speaking of the love, the steadfast love of God. Would you just come to Jesus? Would you come to him and experience this love, this grace? Let's think just quickly here about our response in these last couple verses. David's response. I love that after this strong prayer, he's he's praying these, these words in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In humility, ask God to test his heart. This is the language of a refiner testing metal for impurities. He asked God to expose any wicked way or grievous way or way of pain. And I think that's a great way to think about our sin Think about the path that we walk when we make that conscious decision to walk in sin. It's a, it's a way of pain for us and for those around us. And he juxtaposes that with the way of life everlasting. Lord, examine my heart. I want to love what you love. I want to hate what you hate. I want to be strong And stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. I want to be humble. Search me, try me, reveal anything contrary to the word in me. What does that conjure up in your own heart and mind this morning? We have a spectrum, don't we, of things that that come into our, our thinking that God would address. 
Maybe there's a besetting sin that comes to your mind that we're giving ourselves to that we can see is creating pain in a way of pain. God's calling you to repent and turn back to the way of everlasting life. Maybe you're struggling with a different kind of pain, the pain of unforgiveness, of harboring bitterness, of maybe feeling guilty yourself because of your sin and not enjoying the grace and the acceptance of God. Christian, when you're in Christ, the darkness of your sin is light to God. It doesn't define you or overtake you. There is no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. Again, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you just let that sit in for a moment? The Bible teaches that God is more than simply creating a story and giving us clues about his existence. More than just a, an ovalist would about their character. God actually entered into his story. Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to attend Oxford University, which if you're a fan of her detective novels, you'll know that. But the main character in her stories was Lord Peter Wimsey, a single aristocratic and fairly lonely man. And then at one point in the story, a new character appears, Harriet Vane. And she is interestingly described as one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University and as a writer of mystery novels. Eventually, she and Peter fall in love and marry. And we know what's happening there, don't we? She's looking into the world she has created, and she falls in love with her lonely hero. And she writes herself into the story to save him. I think that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to, to illustrate. The divine author writes himself into our story. And it's, it's touching to think of Dorothy Sayers doing that. My friends, think about what God has done. Looking into the world that he had made and from the beginning knowing he was going to send Jesus Christ to save us. He writes himself into the story. Second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came into this world as a man, Jesus Christ, to die, to take the punishment for our sins, to take our place, to redeem us and free us from the curse of sin. And he rose from the dead. So Christian, take comfort in God's sovereign care for you. Even before you were conceived in your mother's womb, the Lord had designed your size and shape, the specific makeup of your body and soul with the precision of a skilled artisan. He made you exactly as you are for his purposes and glory. And from birth until now, there have been no surprises or accidents in God's eyes. Each and every day, including today, has been ordained and planned by him, written down in his book. There's no fate or fortune or luck or coincidence. There is a sovereign God who made us in his image for his glory. He knows everything. He's everywhere. He can do anything and he will deal with everyone. But praise God, he's made a way for us to know him through Christ. He's worthy to be sought after with all of our lives. The knowledge of God is wonderful. 
and he loves us. Amen. Let's pray together.